Good morning, welcome. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We continue to study through the book of Acts. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 42. The topic, the 12 apostles are beaten, but rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus. The title of our message is Shame On. It's like a father giving birth, you know, it just <coughs> only, only not. <coughs> Acts 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to, be put, uh, commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you for your insights into this passage of Scripture, those things that are the most needful for us to hear, to strengthen our walk with you and to give us a sense of the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And would to God that it could be said of us, Lord, and the gospel Christians in Hanford and Kings County that we had filled this area with the teachings about Jesus. We thank you and praise you, and we do so in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Public beatings are not too popular here in the United States. If you are going to Singapore, however, I'd recommend you obey the law to the letter. Some of you might recall the case of American teenager Michael Fay, who was publicly beaten there in 1994 for vandalism. We can't be absolutely certain about exactly how the beating of the 12 apostles was carried out, 
There's a clue, though, in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul became something of an expert at public beatings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, he wrote, From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. And so up until that point in 2 Corinthians, he'd already been beaten eight separate times. And these are two different types of public beatings. One was what we would call a scourging or a flogging. Tied to a post with your back at least exposed, you would be flogged 13 times with a scourge formed of three cords. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy limited the beating to 40 lashes or stripes. 13 strokes of the scourge would count as 39 stripes, one below the legal limit of 40. Though meant as a form of corporal punishment, you could die from a scourging. Paul mentioned a second type of beating with what he called rods. We would call it a caning. I wasn't able to find a description of caning in the first century, but I don't think that the procedures have changed very much. There's, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's what you would receive in Singapore. The cane itself is a wooden rod. The subject to be caned is strapped to a frame with the buttocks exposed. Parts of the body are padded to prevent accidental damaging of the kidneys and the genitals, but the procedure can still leave permanent scars on the subject, and you might be left crippled by it. The 12 apostles were either scourged or caned. They could have died from either or been left crippled. They certainly would be left scarred. There was also an emotional component to being beaten publicly like this. It was done with all or parts of your body exposed. It was humiliating and shameful to be scourged or caned. It should therefore stun you when you read that they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoicing and shame don't normally go together. I want to explore the believer's rejoicing and shame a little bit. I'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus is no one to be ashamed of. And number two, Jesus is someone to bear shame for. First of all, in verses 27 through 32, Jesus is no one to be ashamed of. Murdered by hanging on a tree. That's Peter's interpretation of Jesus on the cross there in verse 30. And it reminds us how shameful was our Lord's death. If we are his followers, then we can expect to bear shame for him as he bore it for us. The world may someday try to silence you by shaming you. You can bear the shame, even rejoice that you are counted worthy to be treated just like Jesus was. He is no one to be ashamed of, no matter how you're treated for him. Now, we're picking up in the middle of a story, obviously. The apostles had been arrested for preaching about Jesus against the orders of the Jewish ruling council. An angel released them miraculously from jail. They went right back to their preaching, right back to the place where they were arrested. They are rearrested and brought before the Sanhedrin to be questioned about their disobedience. And that's where we pick up the story now in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, 
Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. The questioners, the religious authorities, they can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. It's a blatant show of their disrespect. And though they're thrown for a loop here, you know, they had originally called for the apostles and they, the guards came back and said, hey, there's good news and there's bad news. Well, actually, there's only bad news. They're not there. They're back to preaching uh, just where they were. And yet, still, they're, they're keeping their cool. They're, they're, they're holding their own as a council. I mean, after all, this is an official religious authority. And I'm sure they had meetings, pre-meetings. If you've ever been involved in a church committee or a council meeting or something, you know that there's always meetings before the meeting about what we're going to say, more so in today's society when you can't say anything anymore. And so there's meetings before the meetings about the meetings. And, and, and this was a carefully thought out question. And somewhere along the line, they say, we are not even going to mention this man's name. I don't want, somebody, maybe it was Caiaphas or whatever, he said, I don't want to hear the J word today. No one had better mention Jesus or it's off. And so they come out and they say, you know, you taught in this name and this man's blood is on us. It's a blatant show of disrespect. Sadly, in our culture, non-believers do say the name of Jesus, but only when they are cursing. It's become a swear word, and some of you get wounded by it on a daily basis. You have to drive in a carpool or work with somebody who is saying Jesus every five minutes, but they're not calling on him for prayer. It's something they've grown up with as a curse word. Other non-believers may not curse, but they disrespect the Lord in other ways. Intellectuals, for example, even those who profess to be religious, often have their theories about who Jesus really was. They reduce him to a mere man and Christianity to another world religion. It's disrespect for his life and work of dying for them on the cross that they might have eternal life. And so we really are surrounded by a disrespect for the Lord. Tucked in with the disrespect of the Sanhedrin, though, is a tremendous statement. I'm sure they didn't mean to say this. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Because this is a compliment. This is fantastic. Wouldn't it be great, and not just our church, but if, if the evangelical Christians in this area, if you opened up the Hanford Sentinel, you know, in the religious page next Saturday, and it said, the churches have filled Kings County with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nowhere in Kings County where the gospel hasn't been heard by everyone. I mean, that'd be a compliment. They meant it as a concern. What a great thing. How did they do it? Well, they simply gave their personal testimonies as witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. What I like about these apostles is that God did things through them, and then people said, how are you doing that? And they said, well, we're born again. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And really, that's as simple as it was. They had no plan or program other than that. Jesus told them they'd go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. They didn't really understand that. We'll get to about chapter 7. We'll find out that God had to push them out of Jerusalem because they were hanging out there too much. Uh, all they did was receive the Holy Spirit 
and start doing things that God told them to do. In their case, it was miracles, signs, and wonders. And people said, wow, what's going on? I need to know something about this. And they said, well, it's Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And really, it's the same way today. This is how our city and cities and county can be filled with the gospel. We just let the Lord do something in our lives and then tell people what it is he's doing. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The apostles weren't trying to overthrow either the Jewish authority or the Roman authority. They weren't insurrectionists. They were resurrectionists. If the government prohibits you from obeying God, then you obey God rather than the government. Even then, you would do it peacefully. And so we're not out to really change the, the government. We're, uh, you know, as in America, we certainly want to work within the government and vote for godly individuals and exercise our rights as a free people, all that. But all that aside, we're not really here to bring a political revolution. We're here to bring a, a spiritual regeneration into the hearts of men. And should we someday find ourselves oppressed by the government... Don't tell me. I know some of you are thinking, it's here, brother. <laughs> what do you mean, someday? Got my gun with me. But uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, you're laughing, but they do. Anyway, it's okay. I'm the first target. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, if we someday find ourselves oppressed by a godless government, we're to uh, continue to preach the gospel until they tell us not to and then to continue and to disobey peacefully and let them arrest you and beat you and kill you. I mean, that's what I get from these guys. Okay, so. <laughs> Their statement is also a basic principle to live by while we're waiting to be oppressed. In every circumstance, I ought to obey God rather than men. When it comes to everyday living, I'm looking for the Lord's wisdom and instruction and not the world's wisdom and instruction. One of the things that I think has happened over the past decade at least, uh, and I think it could be substantiated, I think even in, as Christians, we have gone from a victorious mentality to a victim mentality. If you watch any pop television at all with their little psychological analyses and different things or do much reading in magazines, even in Christian circles, you'll find that everyone is a victim now of something. Notwithstanding that terrible things do happen to people, and many of you have been victimized in terrible ways. But it used to be that when you came to Christ, old things passed away, and behold, all things become new, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But now we've lost a sense of victory, and Christians, they've lost their way. They don't have victory over these things. They remain victimized, and they look to the world and its wisdom. How am I going to get out of this uh, situation that I'm in? Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Now, how, what, what can I find in the world to help me so that I, I'm not so much of a victim? If you were here for our sunrise service, we talked a great deal about Paul's statement that he would know the power of the resurrection. What is that? It's a reminder that the resurrection was a powerful thing, that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead through the Holy Spirit now resides within us. 
so that we can be victorious and not remain victims. And so we want to obey God rather than men. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. If Peter had a radio program, it would be called Straight Talk from Peter. I mean, this is is bold. I mean, these are the Jewish authorities. You've been arrested, thrown in jail. You've broken out of jail. Now you're rearrested, and you're talking in front of the council, and he says, guys, you murdered the Messiah. Now, Jesus did not invent a new religion. He came as prophesied by the Jewish patriarchs in the Jewish scriptures. The crucifixion was not an accident. It was part of the plan. And so Peter says, God raised up Jesus. Hanging on a tree throws people because we have in our mind this Roman crucifixion, and indeed it was a Roman crucifixion. And so what's Peter talking about? Well, I think it's a reference to Deuteronomy 21, which describes capital punishment among the Jews and says that one deserving of death, a criminal deserving of death, should be hung on a tree. And it says that that person is cursed. The Jews were not allowed by Rome to put criminals to death. They couldn't hang them on a tree. They had to turn them over to Rome to be crucified according to the Roman procedures. And so what Peter is really saying is, you despised the Messiah as a criminal who you wanted to hang on a tree under Jewish law. Instead, you turned him over to Rome and they crucified him. And so he's insulting them in a sense from their own scripture. Murdered is a word meaning with your own hands. And this is another subtlety because I think there's a sense, you know, there is this thing called blame shifting. And even though these Jewish authorities wanted Jesus killed, they handed him over to Rome. And even though they called for his crucifixion, As Pilate tried to release to them Barabbas instead, he said, man, let me find the worst serial killer I can find. I'll release him instead of Jesus because he knew Jesus was innocent, and they cried out, crucify him. And then Pilate, he tries to wash his hands. In one of the most famous uh, scenes in all of history, Pilate is, he says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. No, you don't. You sentenced him to death. His blood is on your hands. And now Peter is saying, his blood was on Pilate's hands. You also murdered him with your own hands. And so the Jews can't say, well, you know, we turned him over to Rome, and uh, they killed him. And you and I sit here, and we think, oh, you know, come on, nobody would say that. Hey, people, that's exactly how people are. They shift the blame. Well, you know, we were mad at Jesus, and we think he should have been punished. But once he got to Rome, oh, well, that crazy Pilate, you know. Had him killed. And so Peter says, no, no, you murdered him with your own hands. It's as if you hung him on a tree, which is what you really wanted to do, but you were unable to do it. And so that's what's going on. It's not a contradiction in terms of how Jesus was really killed. It's just a Jewish kind of understanding of things. And so in verse 31, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Not only was Jesus raised... He was and is exalted to a place of supreme authority and power. But here's what's exciting about this. Despite their heinous crime, the Lord lives to offer them and all Israel forgiveness of sins if they will repent. This is kind of like a one-two gospel punch. Peter says to try and convict them in the power of the Holy Spirit, you murdered the Lord. 
And now he lives to offer you the forgiveness of your sins, that sin and every other sin you've ever committed. Those of you who were saved later in life as an adult, you, you might have this uh, remembrance of the gospel exposing you as a sinner. I can remember very vividly the first time I ever understood that I was a sinner. Not that I did wrong things, that I was glad I never got caught for, uh, you know, uh, not that I thought I was a perfect person, but there comes a time in your life when it really unloads on you, your heart almost explodes with the understanding that you are a sinner deserving of hell. You know, I mean, and just as you begin to weep, the gospel comes and says, but Jesus Christ lives and he forgives you your sin if you'll reach out to him. And this is what Peter, in a masterful way, being led by the Holy Spirit, has brought them to. Now, the apostles were simply stating the facts. And they say in verse 32, we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. They were stating facts. This is what a witness does. You and I are just as much witnesses today. We should state the facts. We, we met Jesus Christ. This is what he's done in our lives. This is our relationship with him. You're a witness of what the Lord is doing in your life. It helps if we are credible as witnesses. All of us have watched enough court TV or courtroom drama to know that you're always trying to undermine the credibility of the witness, get him to contradict himself or say something that's untrue or something like that so that you can jettison his testimony. And this is what people in the world want to do to you as soon as they find out you're a Christian, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether openly or secretly, they want to trip you up. They want to see you fail as a Christian. We help them sometimes, not because we do fail, because obviously we do, but because we put ourselves up on a much higher pedestal than we belong. You don't have to act perfect or say things that aren't true or portray a Christianity that you haven't achieved yet. Just be real. Just be who you are. Talk about your struggles and how the Lord comes in with His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and those kinds of things. People want to see a genuine Christianity. They have, they have some phony Christianity in mind. They see all the television evangelists as guys who were phony, who had some super spiritual aura about them, and behind the scenes they were worse than non-believers. And so they just want to see a real, genuine Christianity and how it works out. At the same time, we do have an enemy, the devil, and if they can trip you up and catch you, uh, they will. And so we want to be credible in, as witnesses so that our lives ought to reflect the testimony we give. Now, Peter and the 11 ended their talk with a reminder that their talk and their walk are energized by the dynamite supernatural power of God the Holy Spirit. His presence in our lives is what sets us apart from every other religion or philosophy of men. Not only are we told what to do to please God, but we are empowered to do it. Jesus hung, exposed as he was crucified, after being humiliated and beaten, bearing shame so that he might offer his killers, the entire human race, forgiveness for their sins. Yet the 12 apostles were not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Jesus was killed as a heinous criminal, naked on the cross after the brutal beatings and all, outside the city of Jerusalem where you would hang and kill murderers and others guilty of a capital offense. We might wear the cross as jewelry now 
and well we should, but it was a terrible symbol of shame in those days. And these guys who all at one time except John had fled that scene, not wanting to share in that shame, ashamed of their being ashamed, now are willing to bear shame for Jesus Christ. I feel, let me put it this way, do you ever feel bad for the mother and father of heinous criminals? I mean, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Dahmer, what was going on there in the basement of your house? You didn't notice that all the animals were missing? And the mothers always get up and they say, he was such a nice little boy, always perfect, I loved him so much. And they, oh, thank you, Mrs. Dahmer, we're thanking you, know. Next witness, I mean, what are you going to do to the mother, you know, and stuff? But what a shame. I mean, they're not going to write any books. How to raise a Dahmer. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a shameful thing. I'm sad for them just picking them out because that's pretty heinous, you know. I mean, that's the kind of thing that was going on. You, you don't want to be associated with people like that. Hey, weren't you friends with Jeffrey? No, oh, no, no, I wasn't. And yet here are the apostles. They say, yeah, that's our Lord. That's our Savior. He's our Messiah, and he's yours too. You murdered him on the tree, and we're not ashamed to tell you that. Now, being unashamed of Jesus is the prerogative for being able to bear shame for him, and that's what we get to in verses 33 through 42. Jesus is someone to bear shame for. Shame is a subcategory of suffering we don't always mention and are rarely prepared for. If you follow Jesus, you will be called upon to bear shame of some kind at some point. Instead of reacting against it, you should count yourself worthy that your witness has caused you to be treated exactly like your Lord was treated. And so in verse 33, when they heard this, they came forward and gave their lives to Christ. No, they were furious and plotted to kill them. You thought I was reading from the message version of the Bible. <laughs> So this isn't exactly like a harvest crusade. I mean, here's Peter, you know, he gives this stunning gospel message, backs it up with miracle signs and wonders. And then they say, okay, the buses might wait, but we're going to kill you, you know, while they do. You know, Billy Graham, he always says the buses will wait. You ever been to a Billy Graham crusade? Raise your hand if you know who Billy Graham is. All right, thank you. We're not that old. And so they plotted to kill them. And in uh, verse 34, it says, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people. He commanded them to, be put, he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. The Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, consisted of 70 men ruled over by the high priest. It was dominated by the sect of the Sadducees. These were the wealthy, materialistic, worldly Jews their earthly comfort led them to deny the supernatural. They wanted to keep things even with Rome. They were happy under Roman domination because they weren't really suffering. There was a smaller but powerful group of Pharisees on the council. The common people revered the Pharisees. Although Jesus always clashed with the Pharisees because of their standards of self-righteousness, these were the religious guys. They believed in the supernatural. They held the scriptures in high regard. They just emphasized externals instead of internals. Gamaliel was the spokesman. And in verse 35, he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, 
He claimed to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Commentators are split. Some consider Gamaliel's advice wise, while others say it was ignorant. God used it, but it seems ignorant to me. I say that because it ignored the truth. First of all, every movement that prospers isn't necessarily of God. If you applied this wisdom, then you'd have to say that all of the world's cults are of God because they claim to be from God and they're prospering around the world wherever they're planted. And so that's just not even a correct assessment of the facts. Gamaliel should have encouraged the council to study the scriptures. He should have said something like, hey guys, let's look into these claims about Jesus. After all, these are a bunch of fishermen. We're the scholars. We know the scriptures inside and out. We should easily be able to refute their claims and prove that this is false and show it to them from the scriptures. If what they're saying is true, then we've got some repenting to do. And that would have been an intellectually honest approach. But instead, to compromise, uh, I mean, it, it achieved a good purpose, I guess, in not getting the apostles killed. Although I don't really, I don't know what Gamaliel's motives were for not wanting these guys to be killed. Maybe they were pure. Not all the Pharisees were bad men. But it could have been more of a kind of a political thing because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always against each other. And at least the apostles were talking about Pharisee kinds of things like supernatural events and phenomena. And so it may have been more selfish, but whatever, it was intellectually dishonest. It didn't look at the real situation. Over the years, I've noticed that intellectuals who are non-believers, doctors of various disciplines and scientists, mathematicians and what, for the most part, Though very, very smart men and women, they are intellectually dishonest when it comes to Christianity. And they dismiss biblical Christianity without ever really looking into it as the kind of thing that you believe if you check your brain at the door. And so you either believe science and you know these formulas and these discoveries, or you check out on all that and you become a, a Christian because science is incompatible with those things. And that is just a lie. And that is just dishonest. Let's just have a debate about it. Let's look at the facts and figure out whose theories better fit the facts. I remember as a young Christian, really one of the first books I read was Dr. Henry Morris's book uh, on uh, many infallible proofs, it's called, still a classic today. It was interesting to me to see that you know, because as soon as I became a Christian, my brother started, you know, arguing with me about evolution and all of that kind of thing. And at first you're like, oh, yeah, because that's what they teach you in school. And, and they wouldn't lie to you in school, you know. I mean, 
about the origin of life and things like that, and you have all this science, and then you get into this and you think, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay, let's look at the fossils, let's look at all of this stuff, and then figure out whose theory fits the facts. And you find out, if you're honest, that it's the Bible, that it's God, and that this other stuff has huge gaps in it so that you have to believe something like the X-Men is possible if you believe in evolution. That all of a sudden there's some quantum leap in evolution, there's no missing link because there's this just all of a sudden there's something, you know, one day there was a tadpole and the next day you've got a pterodactyl and stuff and, and that's just the way it works. I quit reading science a few years ago when I was reading a guy, because we always talk about how you know, we have these illustrations like the watch, you know, if, you know, if there was an explosion in a watch factory, it doesn't come together as a watch, you know, I mean, there, there has to be order and design, and the fact that there's a designer mean, or a design means there's a designer. Well, now some of the disinterested intellectuals are saying, not really, who said that chaos can't be orderly? And that's a theory now. That's a scientific theory that no one has really proved that chaos can't be orderly. I can't talk to a person like that. (laughs) Does your brain hurt when you think thoughts like that? I mean, really. And so these, Gamaliel's really intellectually dishonest here. And he, God uses it, but it's, it's it's not good advice. And it wouldn't be good advice today. And so in verse 30, uh, 30, in verse 30, (laughs) dango, and in verse 40, they agreed with him. I can enunciate when I need to. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, God had shown everyone that this council had no real authority. They arrested and put the apostles in jail. An angel sprung them from jail. They told them not to preach in the name of Jesus. They went right on preaching in the name of Jesus. They rearrested them and threatened them, and they said, we're not going to obey you no matter what you do. And so these guys had no authority. Here were men, at least 12 of them, living in a supernatural realm, being used to perform miracles and signs and wonders. Sure, the council could order them to stop and punctuate it with beatings, but you get the impression it's because they allowed them to do it. But all it did was expose the council as worldly and reveal the apostles as otherworldly. If you were looking at this, you would say, These guys are the guys with the real power to change lives, to affect lives. These guys are telling the truth. Sure, they're being beat up, but what does that matter when you're living in a dimension like that? And so in verse 41, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, you have to understand they were bloodied and bruised and scarred and limping, hanging on to one another yet rejoicing. Jesus had suffered shame for them. And as I said earlier, they were ashamed at having been ashamed of him. And so now, here they were being treated just like their Lord, suffering shame for his sake. If you get that, then you'll be ready the next time you are overlooked or misunderstood or mistreated in any way for the sake of being a Christian. And then in verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. 
they went right back to witnessing. They obeyed God rather than men. And in reality, I mean, what, the thing is, it wasn't, okay, if you're the council, you're, you're acting like you're telling these guys to quit their job. You guys quit your job as itinerant ministers. Go back to fishing. And they're standing there thinking, we can't quit telling people that we've been born again and that Jesus is alive. I mean, we, we can't, that would be a lie of, of huge proportions, not only in our own lives, but to affect the lives of hundreds or thousands or millions of other people. It's not the kind of thing you can quit telling people. And so they had to go right back to doing that. It wasn't their job. It was who they were. It's interesting. I was kind of speculating about this. I always try and bring things up to date, you know, and what would this be like in our own culture? We live in an age right now, unfortunately, of what people are calling the seeker-sensitive church. Uh, and it's, it has a probably a, a good goal in that there are many people in our community that are not churched, never been to church, and we want to be sensitive to them. Maybe they're seeking. And so we design our you know, services and our buildings or everything kind of bows to the seeker-sensitive individual because you don't want to spook a person like that. They're easily spooked. They're like a horse that's never been trained, you know, <laughs> you know and stuff. And so I'm just, you know, trying to live in your world a little bit. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to have to get a six-gun after today. But anyway, uh, the, uh, you know, so, and so we don't want to spook these people. And, and so you don't want to be too overtly Christian. You, you know, you, you don't maybe want to even have a cross in the building because it reflects, you know, the death of Christ. You don't want to talk about blood and gore and those kinds of things. And, and the message is a, is a watered-down message. It, it's, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, the wrong message. It's not a, a strong message. Uh, and, and you're trying to draw these people in. And I, I even understand that to a certain extent. I mean, we do want to reach people. But then I, I'm confronted with the first church. And these guys, you know, they, they didn't have a building, so they went out into Solomon's portico there in the temple. And they were drawing crowds. And here they were, after this beating, bruised and limping and, and bloodied to a certain extent. You don't, you don't recover from being caned overnight or from being scourged. I'm not sure what they did in Solomon's porch, but the usual posture for a teacher was to sit and the, stu and the, you know, the audience stood. Hey, why isn't Peter sitting down? You should see his buttocks. Man, did he get caned? I mean, you know, so Peter, what, none of them were sitting down. Hey, we'd like permission to stand because we all got caned yesterday and it hurts. And so here, here you were. And you're listening to these guys, and they're encouraging you to believe and tell others about Jesus Christ. You can be just like us, <laughs> bloodied and bruised and scarred for life, maybe crippled for life and put to shame by the religious authorities. And it's not too much of a stretch for you to think persecution's getting worse. It won't be long before we won't be able to hold jobs, and they'll start confiscating our personal belongings, which is what happened not too long after this. That is not a seeker-friendly message, but it's the truth. 
And you know, I found that people like the truth. One thing I really love, I, I like to joke about Hanford and Kings County and all that, but I really love it here. And one thing I love about it here is that people like straight talk. They like to be told the truth for the most part. And so I, I don't think we need to be seeker sensitive in the sense of watering down the truth. I think it is seeker sensitive to tell people the truth. I mean, if you knew an airplane was going to crash, you wouldn't want to, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You know that, you might not want to go on that plane today. What are you talking about? Well, I just, (laughs) man, you'd, You'd do anything you could to keep a disaster like that from happening. People are on a broad path, the Bible says, that leads to destruction. And we want to tell them the truth. We we may not have time to be watering down the truth. We don't know how far along they are on that broad path that leads to destruction. And so we want to tell the truth. That's what these guys did. And the Bible says they filled their city with the teaching about Jesus Christ by telling the truth. And what was the truth? We knew Jesus. We were born again. And now he does things in and through our lives. That really was it. We make a big deal about their signs and wonders and their miracles and all of that kind of thing. But really, if you follow these guys through, they just followed Jesus and he did things through them. They didn't even know what to pray for, gifts of healing, tongues. I mean, they didn't know any of that stuff. God just did things through them, and people saw it and said, God is doing something through you. How is that possible? And you say, well, you, you, uh, you give your life to Jesus Christ, and he'll do the same for you. And it's just the simplest thing in the world spoken from the truth. Are you ready to sign on for all that? Well, if you're a Christian, you already have. Will it ever really come to us being shamed like this in America? Well, it is like that in most of the rest of the world, and it may not come to that in America. I hope it doesn't. I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm not getting into the powerful clothes now where I pray for persecution to come to the church. If it comes, you know, it comes, but we don't need to pray for it. Please don't pray for it. <laughs> We're out praying you as a leadership, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> It is true that persecution always strengthens the church, but hey, we're talking about very serious things. We're talking about people being, you know, crippled and wounded for life. We're talking about people losing their lives, families being ripped apart. I mean, it's nothing to be flippant about because our brothers and sisters in the rest of the world are suffering this way right now. I really hope that, and they would hope for us that it would never come to that in the United States. And so let's hope that it doesn't. Pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. And then just realize that every day we do have sufferings to bear. And we can rejoice in the sufferings that target us because we are Christians. We can toughen up a little bit, not act so hurt and defensive when we're being mistreated. We can rejoice that people actually notice that we are Christians. You know, a lot of times you wonder, man, does anybody even care or know that I'm a Christian? And then you're mistreated for the sake of Christ and you want to file a grievance. Get excited. Be happy about that if it's for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, you know, you don't need to be terrified or worried that persecution is going to come and will you have the strength and the courage and the fortitude to meet it. The answer to that is you will have the Holy Spirit to meet it. 
These men didn't go to classes to learn how to be courageous. They, they, they didn't grow up, you know, as little children being taught, you know, how to die for their faith. They weren't lied to or, or put on some phony. One day they were men who were afraid, didn't want to be at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, ashamed to be associated with him. And literally, the next day, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they couldn't do anything but talk about him. And when they were brought before the authorities and told, basically, we're going to kill you, they said, give it your best shot. Kill us. We can't stop talking. You can't learn that. You can't even really, in one sense, prepare for it. It's just who you are as the Lord fills you. And so don't, don't worry about what's coming. Just live today as a Christian. Give your testimony. Live your testimony. See what the Lord would do with it. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your spirit through whom all these things are possible. You told us, Lord.